Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Father God, thank you so much for this beautiful morning. Lord, for that worship uh, this morning that just so blessed my heart. Lord, I pray that it was a blessing and put a smile on your face this morning, Lord. I pray now that you would take this time, Lord, that you would um, do something with these words that that, uh, I've put together. Lord, use me as a tool in your hand this morning to paint a masterpiece. Lord, we thank you so much. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So... On a special teacher's day in a kindergarten class, the teacher was receiving gifts from her students. The florist's son handed her a gift, and she shook it, held it over her head, and she says, I bet I know what this is. It's flowers. That's right, said the boy. How did you know? I was just a wild guess, she said. The next pupil that came up was the candy store owner's daughter. The teacher held the box over her head and shook it, and she says, I bet I can guess what this is. It's a box of chocolates. That's right, but how did you know, asked the girl. Just a lucky guess, said the teacher. The next gift was from the liquor store owner's son. (laughs) The teacher took the bag and held it up over her head and noticed that it was leaking a little bit. So she touched the drop of the leakage to her finger and tasted it. Is it wine? She asked. No, replied the boy. She repeated the process, touching the leakage and tasting it again, and she said, is it champagne? No, the boy replied. Well, then I give up. What is it? The boy smiled and said, it's a puppy. (laughs) You see, sadly, (laughs) it's good to be back, isn't it? Sadly, the teacher misread the signs and arrived at a wrong conclusion. That's going to come up later. I just want you to hold on to that. (laughs) So, Luke 19. At this time, you know, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, for his disciples who are going with him, this is not the first time that he's been to Jerusalem. And this is not an unusual trip because all Jewish men, especially, and maybe families also, are all going to Jerusalem at this time because it's the Passover feast. They're kind of required to go if they live within a certain number of miles. But this was one of those feasts that everybody loved to go to. It was kind of like a big party. It was very festive. And so they're on their way, Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, um, the thing is that Jesus knows that this is his last trip, his last time going in Jerusalem. He's probably gone every year for the last several years, but this he knows is his last time. This is going to be actually Palm Sunday. This the day that he rides in is his last Sunday on earth in the form that he has been for the last 30 something years. The next, the next Sunday, which would be Easter or Resurrection Sunday, he does uh, walk the earth. I mean, it's in a slightly different form. Right now he's in like a glorified form. So he's on his way to Jerusalem for the last time in this way. Now, I'm sure the disciples, as they're going along, and his followers and the apostles, they're all very excited because I think they must believe, you know, this is it. This is the time he's going to go in. This is when Jesus is going to, he's going to become king. He's going to be the liberator. Yes, this is an excellent thing. And they're all very excited. And I'm sure Jesus was excited for them, for what was to come. But deep down, you know, he must have been thinking, he knows what's coming. Well, while he's on his way, what we saw last week is Jesus continues to have compassion on people. You would think that maybe Jesus is so focused on what he's about to do that he's just like, I'm just going to get there. But that's not his character. That's not who Jesus is. He has compassion on people. You see, he talked to, remember the, the rich young ruler that Jeff talked about last week that comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit? He says, inherit eternal life. But the word means obtain or acquire. 
he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to add eternal life to my already long list of possessions? It says that he was very rich. And Jesus throws out a handful of commandments, all those who, that have to do with the outward. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't, tell false, don't bear false witness. He gives them all these outward ones and the man says, oh, I've done all those things since my youth. Had he? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I doubt it. But then the man says, well, I've done all these things since my youth. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Now, that must have seemed like really good news in, the, in that moment for that man. Like, oh, just one thing? I just lack one thing? Excellent. Just tell me what it is. How much does it cost? I'll acquire it. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. And the one thing that you lack, essentially, is a single-hearted devotion to the Lord. Because he just wanted to add to what he already possessed. And Jesus says, you have a divided heart. Your heart is divided between your possessions and your kind of desire for eternal life. And Jesus says, that's the one thing. And then he says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And the man went away sad because those were the things that he really, really loved were his possessions. Then we come along this, this other man, Blind Bartimaeus. I love the story of Blind Bartimaeus. Jeff did such a great job of pointing out that he was sitting by the side of the road, basically, and he hears the commotion, and he calls out and goes, what's going on? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody is just like, shush, quiet. And Jesus stops. And he says, bring him to me. Now, what it doesn't say in Luke, but it says in the other gospels, and I love this part, was it says that Bartimaeus got up and threw off his cloak and went to Jesus. Do you know why I love that so much? Do you know that as a blind beggar, the only thing that Bartimaeus had of any value at all was his cloak? That was the thing that would keep him from freezing to death at night. In fact, you could use your cloak as collateral on a loan. But it was so important that the law said that if someone gives you their cloak as a collateral on the loan, you must give it back to them every single day so that they don't freeze to death overnight. And then they would give it to you again the next day. That's how important it is. And yet blind Bartimaeus stands up, throws off his cloak, and makes his way to Jesus. Do you know why that's so cool? Because that says to me that Bartimaeus had such faith that what Jesus was going to give him back his sight, that he would easily be able to then go back and find his cloak. How does a blind man find his cloak that he just throws off if he's still blind? He went full on faith to Jesus, who he knew would heal him. And he would then have his sight and he would be able to find his cloak. I love that. Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? That seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? It's Jesus. He's blind. But he asks him, he says, tell me specifically what you want me to do. And when I hear that, I hear Jesus say, be specific in your prayers to me. Be, I already know, but I want you to be specific. He says, I want my sight. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Then we see Zacchaeus. I, I love the story of Zacchaeus too. It's probably because there's a song that goes along with it from Sunday school. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. Jan's doing the motions with me back there. Sits. That's right. To see what he could see. I won't sing the whole thing, but you know. I love the story of Zacchaeus because he was so desperate to see Jesus that he was okay at probably being laughed at and mocked for his desire to see Jesus. You know, <coughs> Jeff talked about last week, he was a little short guy. He climbed up into a tree in a tunic, by the way, just so he could see. And there he is, like, clinging to the tree. And, you know, I imagine in my mind it's this great big tree. He's way up there. But it probably only put him a head or shoulders above the rest of the crowd. So there he is, like, clinging to this sycamore tree. You know, and I'm sure that people were laughing and pointing at him. And he did not care. He desperately wanted to see Jesus. Some days I am that guy and I so badly just want to spend time with Jesus that there is nothing that's going to stop me. And then there are days 
When I am not like Zacchaeus, where I am afraid that someone might laugh at me, and so I keep my mouth closed. Whew, man, forgive me, Lord, for those days. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who avoids climbing up the sycamore tree so that they can see Jesus because they're desperate to see Jesus. But man, Zacchaeus was so moved by Jesus coming to his house and having a meal that he comes to him and he says, look, Lord, I've given away half my stuff to the poor. And anybody I've cheated, I've paid back fourfold. Jesus never asked him to do any of that, didn't he? See, the thing with the rich young ruler was money was the obstacle. With Zacchaeus, it wasn't even an obstacle. He just gave it away. He said, you know what? I just give away half of what I have, and I'll pay back fourfold. I mean, he must have had a lot. But he gave away a lot. So then we see as we, as we ah, geez, I lost my place. Give me a sec. Uh, okay. We're going to pick up at 29. Luke 19, 29. So here we have Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Luke here has it that he uh, is coming into Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet. In the Gospel of John, it says that he arrives six days before Passover, and he goes and he stays in Bethany with his friends, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Uh, Most people believe that they were friends from childhood, that they were close. And so he goes with all of his followers and disciples, and they're staying at um, (coughs) the house of of Lazarus and, and Martha and Mary. And I can imagine you like, like Jesus and his maybe close in apostles or the, the, those who are close are staying in the house. And then there, we have all of these other disciples, this multitude. You know that there are thousands and thousands of people streaming into Jerusalem at this time of year. In fact, it says that the, the population went from about 500,000 in Jerusalem to two and a half million. So you have all these people coming in. Plus, you've got a bunch of people that's going to call, it, call them a multitude who are coming in with Jesus. So just imagine you're at Martha and Mary's house, and there's just all these people just kind of camped out, waiting to go in with Jesus the next day. And so Jesus comes in. As he's there at their house that night for dinner, <coughs> of course, Martha's cooking, because that's what Martha does. But Mary comes out with a pound of spikenard oil. I don't really know what that smells like, but apparently it smells very, very good. And she breaks open this bottle and she pours it over Jesus. And then it says that she wiped his, her, his feet with her hair. And it says that the fragrance from the oil filled the house and, and everyone there could, could smell it. And I thought, wow, Mary's devotion to the Lord spread throughout the entire household, and everyone was affected by that. I don't have spiked nard oil, but what I do have is a devotion to Jesus Christ. And I hope that my devotion to Jesus Christ spreads to those around me and lingers in the air so much so that they are all affected. And do you want that too? Do you want your devotion to Jesus Christ to spread through the entire household? And when I say household, maybe it's, <clears throat> maybe it's your job, your school, your family, you know, any kind of a gathering that it would spread from you and fill the room. Of course, Judas at this time says, hey, we could have sold that oil and given it to the poor. It wasn't his oil, by the way. It's kind of presumptuous, don't you think? Hey, that thing that is yours that you gave to Jesus, we could have sold that for the ministry. And then it gives us some insight and it says he didn't really care about the poor. He was a thief, it says. But he says, no, we could have taken it, we could have sold it, and we could have given the money to the poor. And Jesus says, you know, she's anointing. She has saved this to anoint me for the day of my death. Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. But the disciples, they're kind of clueless. They don't really get. Even though the truth is right before their eyes, and Jesus has told them point blank many times, this is what's going to happen. They haven't seemed to quite grasp the truth. The Bible says that it was hidden from them. You know, we've been having some conversations like, well, does that mean God hid it from them? Or was it just a way of saying they couldn't see it. They couldn't see the truth. (coughs) 
let me tell you a, a quick little story to help you understand how that could happen. There was this uh, traveling preacher that would go around the country um, preaching in different churches, and his uh, wife would go with him, and they had this RV that they would drive from place to place, so they would always have some place to sleep. And so as he had finished up his tour, he was driving home, and he was pretty tired, and so his wife said to him, honey, why don't you go in the back and take a nap, and I'll drive the rest of the way home. So he was like, yo, thank you so much. That's a great idea. So he goes back into the back you know, bedroom of the RV, and he's taking a nap, and his wife is driving, <coughs> and... Uh, she comes, uh, he wakes up from his nap, but he doesn't go forward. She comes to a stoplight um, in, in, in this one particular town. And he, for some reason, just steps out of the RV just for a second. Now, she doesn't realize that and drives away, leaving him standing on the sidewalk, waving goodbye to his wife in the RV. She's clueless that he's not even in there, and off she goes. Well, he makes his way over to the bus station, gets a bus ticket, and gets on a bus to go home. Now, because the bus driver drives a little faster than his wife does, he actually gets home before her. So as she pulls into the driveway, she sees her husband standing on the front step. She sees the truth right in front of her, but she cannot grasp it because she believes that he's sleeping in the back of the RV. Now, as she's staring at her husband, standing right in front of her, she drives right through the garage door. <laughs> well, that's an example of her seeing the truth right before her eyes and not comprehending it. The truth of the situation was hidden from her. Well, she believed it to be something other than it was, and she ended up going through the garage door. Well, here Jesus is. He's about to ride into Jerusalem uh, in a very special way. And we're going to look at that. It says in verse 29, <clears throat> it says, And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you where you entered. You will find a colt tied on which no one ever sat. And if anyone asks you why you are loosing it, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So Jesus says to two guys, go on in, and uh, you're going to find a, a cult, it says we know um, from the other Gospels. It's a donkey, the foal of a donkey, meaning that a, it's a, a young donkey. And I think, who are these two guys? Have you ever thought about that? Who are the two? It just says two guys. Two, he sent two disciples in. Who were they? I wonder. I'm on theory. I'll share it with you now. I think it was James and John, the brothers, the sons of thunder. And here's why I think that. Because just before this, as they were on their way to Jerusalem, James and John asked Jesus, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, may we sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory? And so they come. And one gospel says that they even had their mom come and ask for them. Like, mom, go and ask Jesus if when he's king, we could sit on his right hand and his left hand. And it says the other disciples found this out and they were not too happy with these guys for doing this. And I wonder if Jesus is saying, okay, James and John, you want to be something in the kingdom of God? You want to have position? Here's a position. Go be the donkey getters. And go into town and get my donkey and bring it out here. And so there's, I can't believe we've got to go and get the donkey. <laughs> <clears throat> now, it says, it doesn't say anywhere in the Gospels that they said anything contrary or even questioned the command to go out there. But it is as, as Jesus was saying, do you want to be something in the kingdom of God? Here's how you do it. Serve me. Serve me. You want to be, you want position in, the, in God's kingdom. He says, serve me. That's one of those things that I love about Calvary Chapel and, and Chuck Smith way at the beginning when he first got started and people would come and say, Chuck, I think I should be a leader in your church. And Chuck would say, all right, Here's a, a brush, a scrub brush. Go clean the toilets. Serve. Serve. In fact, I've been told many times in, in uh, my time here that if someone comes to you and says, I think I should be a leader, that person should not be a leader. Because their heart is in the wrong place. Jesus says, you want to be a leader? Go get the donkey. And so they go. 
And they go and they get the donkey. They didn't question it. They just did it. So I give them credit. Whoever those guys were, I give them credit for just going and doing. I'm sure maybe along the way they were kind of talking to themselves and saying, so we're just going to like take somebody's donkeys? Did he call ahead? I mean, like, did he make plans? Or do we, and and, and uh, the other guy maybe just says, you know what? I think we're just supposed to go and get the donkey. And so they go into town and there is a donkey. The colt, the foal of a donkey that, that had never been ridden on, tied up, and so they just start loosening it. And hey, surprise, surprise, the owner of the donkey says, excuse me, why are you taking my donkey? And so they say, the Lord has need of him. <laughs> Which, when I read that, I've always just read it where they're like, the Lord has need of this donkey. But I wonder if it was more like, because the Lord has need of him? <laughs> like, like wondering, is this going to work if we say it like this? Is it going to work? And really what it comes down to is all they had to do was say the words that the Lord had said, and it would work. It wasn't necessarily how they said it. They just had to say what God, what Jesus said. Say this, the Lord has need of him? Oh, okay, here you go. And that's all we know. We don't know what happened or what the conversation is other than that they said what the Lord said to do. They did what he said to do, and they said what he said to say. And the guy gave him his donkey, and off they go. <laughs> and you guys just have to bear with me on the coughing part. <laughs> and my communion cup's flying all over the places. <laughs> So, um, it says that they brought them to Jesus, and they threw their, their clothes on him, and they set Jesus on him. So, here's the thing, like, why a donkey? Have you ever thought about that? Why Jesus said, go in and get a donkey. Not just a donkey, a little one, a, a, a full of a donkey, a cult um, that no one's ever ridden on. Go and get me that wild animal. And bring it so that I can ride in on that. And have you ever asked yourself, why a donkey? <clears throat> well, and one, one thing that we do know for sure about Jesus is that Jesus fulfilled prophecy regularly. So you have to know that in Zechariah 9.9, I'll read it to you, 9.9. You can write this down for yourself. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, the king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Zechariah 5.9, for 500 years before this happened, it was prophesied that the king would ride into Jerusalem Riding a donkey. And the really important part is this part right here, that it says he is just and having salvation. He comes in with salvation. This isn't an unfamiliar text to them, by the way. They would have and should have known this prophecy. So that's one reason that Jesus rides in on a donkey, because he was fulfilling prophecy. So another thing to take note is that it's a donkey and not like a horse, um, why wouldn't he, you know, he come in on a big white stallion, just like, and he's riding in and everyone's, no, he's on a donkey. Imagine a little donkey. I mean, you're just like, you know, his feet are kind of like dragging as he's riding this little donkey. You know, the, the thing is, if it were a, a horse, the horse kind of represented like a, 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 a warlord coming in and like a conquering hero. Whereas if it was a donkey, it meant that he came in peace. Okay, and it wasn't unusual actually for kings to ride donkeys. David had a donkey, at least one. We actually know that David had a donkey because when he made his son Solomon king over his other son who was trying to usurp the throne, he said, go and put him on my donkey and bring him in. It wasn't unusual. Um, so again, he's fulfilling prophecy. Um, he is showing that he is coming in peace by riding in on a donkey. But um, this says, uh, and we also know in the Old Testament that, that kings and prophets often rode donkeys. Kings and prophets often rode donkeys. And so as I thought about that, it was like the ones that God chose to deliver his word 
often rode in on donkeys. You see, see what's happening here is it, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. But why was the prophecy that the king would ride in on a donkey? Well, because he came in peace. Oh, because he was the one chosen by God to deliver his word. He was a king. He was a prophet. Now, here's something. Why was it a donkey that had never been ridden before? Okay, so I heard a lot of commentary, and I've heard this for years, that, well, you know, this was an unbroken animal. Have you ever tried to ride an unbroken animal? Have you ever, like, just gone out and gotten a wild horse and said, I think you're going to ride this horse, and you just kind of hop on its back? You know, it doesn't go well. I can tell you it won't go well. The thing's going to kick and buck and go crazy. And so Jesus is saying, not just a donkey, because that's foretold, um, for all these reasons we just talked about, but I want you to get one that has never been ridden before. So get me one of them wild donkeys. And, and people say, well, that's because God, Jesus wanted to demonstrate his authority over all creation. All creation is under the, the sovereign authority of Jesus. And that's true. I do believe that. I do believe that. <coughs> but there's more. You see... In the Old Testament, animals that had yet to be yoked or used were often preserved or reserved for holy purposes. Oftentimes, they were the animals that were used um, for sacrifice. The one-year-olds, the ones that had never been yoked or used, they did not have the fingerprint of man. Oftentimes, we see in one story where they say they go out and they got two animals that had never been yoked before and hook the ark to it and let them pull the ark wherever the Lord will lead them. We see that animals that were young or unyoked or unused were reserved for holy purposes. Now, this makes sense to me. Jesus says, go in to get a donkey, but not just a donkey. Go in and get a donkey that has never been used, which is actually reserved for this holy purpose, to bring in the holy king, to bring in the holy prophet into Jerusalem at this time. A donkey that had never been ridden. That's pretty cool. So, on verse 36, it says, And when he went, many spread their clothes on the road. You know, why would they do that? Well, you remember, we talked about Bartimaeus, the idea of like the cloak, their clothes, They were very valuable to them. In fact, at this time, most people only had one or two changes of clothes. Now, that's hard for us to understand. Some of you, I've never seen you wear the same shirt on Sunday. But we have lots of clothes to choose from. We have lots of outfits. At this time, they didn't have that. They had one or two outfits, maybe, that they got to change into. So taking off something off their body that was really valuable and laying it at the feet of Jesus so that the donkey that he rode on wouldn't actually even touch the ground, but would be walking across their clothes. And I thought, man, I mean, that's some serious devotion to the Lord right there to say, I'm going to take what I have of value and I'm going to lay it at the feet of Jesus, my Lord. Now, when I said that to myself this week, I heard God say, what do you have of value that you're willing to lay at my feet? in devotion to me. Man, man, that's convicting, isn't it? What do you have in your life that's of value to you that you are willing to lay down at the feet of Jesus in devotion to him? Now, maybe it's a possession that you own. Maybe you have a a car that you're really proud of, that maybe you've restored or worked on, and God says, okay, are you willing to lay that down at my feet? Maybe it's your home or the properties that you own, but maybe it's not any kind of a material thing at all. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your career. Maybe you've worked so hard on your career that you are placing so much emphasis on that that your devotion to the Lord is taking a second back seat. A second back seat. That's way back. God says, are you willing to lay that down at the feet of Jesus? What about your plans? You got some plans for the future? At some point, I'm going to retire. And God says, maybe. Are you willing to lay that down at my feet? Now, he doesn't say, I'm going to strip it away from you. He just says, are you willing to lay it down 
at my feet in devotion to me. Maybe it's not your plans. Maybe it's not your relationships necessarily with a husband or a wife. Maybe it's your children's future. Are you holding so tightly to your children's future that you're unwilling to lay it down at the feet of Jesus in devotion to him? I think you have to ask yourself, what is it that I have that I'm holding back? I say, well, here you can, you can have, here you go, Jesus. You can have these, but I'm holding on to this. Rather, just put it all at the feet of Jesus and just say, it's yours anyway. My future is yours. My husband, my wife is yours. My children are yours anyway. It says, then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. You got you to gotta picture this, okay? There is a large multitude of people who are coming in behind Jesus as he's being led in on this little donkey and they're yelling and they're screaming and they're excited. And have you ever thought about the makeup of this crowd? Because I haven't given it much thought until this week. Just random people. I, sometimes I think that was just the disciples, just the apostles and Mary probably and a couple people. But you know what? It probably included Bartimaeus who had just been given back his sight walking along, cheering for Jesus. It might have been Zacchaeus. It might have been the people that he healed that were lame. He might have been the people that he healed that were sick. Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons cast out of her. Lazarus, who was just dead before this. Those who had seen him do great things. Those who had maybe sat with him and heard his sermons and heard the things that he had to say, these are the ones that are coming along with him, behind him, in this crowd, and they're laying down their clothes, and they're shouting for joy of the entry of Jesus Christ, who they believe is coming to liberate them from their oppressor, which, by the way, they believe to be the Roman government. Now, it's said in Zacharias that he comes with salvation, which they understood to mean, well, he's going to free us from the oppressor. In fact, he does do that, but not the one that they thought. They thought it was going to be the Roman government. Jesus says, I'm coming in to take captivity captive. I'm coming in to free you, to liberate you, but it's not from the Romans. It's from the burden of your own sin. That is why he came. Nobody needed to come in and destroy the Romans, by the way. They destroyed themselves from the inside out, eventually. Well, they did a lot of damage along the way. Now, there was another group of people involved in this multitude as well. In fact, it says in John's gospel that there were those in the city who heard Jesus was coming in and they came out to meet Jesus on the road. And it says that they cut down palm branches and waved them along the way and threw them on the road. That's where we get the name Palm Sunday. But you know what they were doing? It wasn't that they were afraid to take off their cloaks and throw them down. See, there was significance behind the palms that they cut down. You see, remember, they're looking at Jesus as a liberator from oppression who was going to come in and save them. Hosanna, they say. Hosanna means save now. 160 years before this. The Jews were under the oppression of, of the oppression of the Syrians, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he so badly wanted to crush any kind of religious dedication to God that he forbid any Jewish rituals or ceremonies and, and burned as many scripture, uh, Old Testament scrolls as he could find. And he forbade, forbade them from sacrificing in the temple. Um, now, uh, there's, this, there's a lot to the story, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but essentially what happens is he goes into the temple and he desecrates the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar and then making the priests eat the flesh of the pig. Now, this was more than the Jewish people could take, and a family raise, ra uh, rises up called the Maccabees. Um, and essentially, uh, a man that you, you, you kind of get to know, Judah, 
Maccabees, kind of the leader. Um, you have to get into the story to see that he was like the second or third in line and his other brothers were killed along the way. And it, this wasn't a one day thing, but essentially what happens is Judah Maccabees comes in, they defeat the Solutions, the Syrian army, and he goes in and he cleanses the temple from the desecration that had happened so that sacrifices and rituals can then take place again. And as he's riding in and out of the city, people cut down palm branches and they're waving them in this kind of procession or parade. And it became a symbol of liberation. So they actually started to stamp coins with palm fronds at that point um, as a symbol of liberation from desecration and oppression. And so you see that their view of Jesus coming in is like, finally, the one that we've been waiting for is coming in. He's going to ride in, and he is going to free us from oppression, and they're breaking down these palm branches, and they're waving it in the same manner that they did 160 years before at the time of Judah Maccabees. That's what the palms are about. So it says that the whole multitude is there and you've got those who are following Jesus. And you've got those who are coming out to meet with Jesus. Now, you would think that, you know, later on when there's a, when they're, where they're, Jesus is on trial and they're um, saying to him, um, we will not have this man to rule over us. You remember that from last week? Jeff, Jesus gives a parable about a, king that go, uh, a man that goes away to get a kingdom and the people resist and they say, we won't have this man to rule over us. That's actually the exact same thing that the people say of Jesus when he is holed up before them. And they were like, is this your king? You might wonder how then can this group that came and they were so excited about Jesus turn on him and say, crucify him. Before they were saying, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and then turns around and they're saying, crucify him. Well, I honestly believe this is the group of people who came out from the city, not came in with Jesus, but those who came out from the city expecting to find the, rule, the king that would come in and liberate them from oppression. And when he didn't do what they had hoped he would do, they turned. Because that's how people are. When, you, when people don't get what they want or they expect, they turn. And this says that as he was drawing near... <coughs> The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works he had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And actually, they're not making this up. They're, re they're, they're reciting a part of Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 25, it says, Save now, Hosanna, same thing. I, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, <coughs> they're, they're, they're seeing Jesus come in and they're calling out, blessed is he, Hosanna, save now. He comes in the name of the Lord. There's another couple of verses before that, though, in Psalm 118, that I'm surprised that they didn't think about this, as they obviously have enough of it memorized that they're able to call it out. But in verse 22, it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's speaking of Jesus Christ. This was the Lord's doing. It is a marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That is the part that they didn't say. They went right to the save now, Lord. He comes with, you know, power to, to uh, um, defeat the oppressors. But the part that they don't say is he, has, he is the chief cornerstone, which the, the builders have rejected. This day is the day that the Lord has made. So that's so important. Hold on to that in your mind for a minute. And, and they're crying out, and they're calling out, and they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the king. And so um, they're quoting from Psalm 118, which is a messianic prophecy also. And they recognize it, because look at the next verse, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. It's essentially what it was, they were saying to him is, Jesus, your disciples, your followers are committing heresy they're saying that you are someone who you're not. Essentially, they're, they're, they're giving you divine quality. You need to rebuke them. Now, here's the thing. This is where we see a stark 
contrast between Jesus's ministry up to this point and now. All the way up to this point, whenever Jesus did something miraculous, he healed somebody or cast out demons or did some incredible thing, what would he always do? Shh, don't, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. How does Jesus raise your daughter from the dead and then say, don't, don't tell anybody it was me? I often wonder about that. But, but essentially, he would say, up until this point, don't publicly worship me. It's not my time yet. Now, there were times when he fed the 5,000. They, they physically wanted to take him and make him be king, but he would not allow it because he said, it is not the time for the Son of Man to be glorified yet. Now it's different. Now it changes. At this point, Jesus says, now is the time. In fact, this is the day that the Lord has made for me to be glorified. He says this, a complete switch now. Jesus says, now is the time. In fact, he says to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And Jesus says, this is so true. I am who I say I am, and I will be glorified on this day. And if not a single person opened their mouth, the rocks themselves would cry out. You would not be able to stop it. In fact, there's an interesting verse um, in, another, in another gospel where the Pharisees are arguing with one another, and, and they say to themselves, you've done nothing. Look, the entire world goes out after him. Jesus says, if these followers of mine were to keep silent and not speak of my glory, the rocks themselves, nature would cry out. I, I kind of wish that they weren't, the, the people were quiet just for a minute because what would that sound like? What if the, would the rocks just like, and they would just like crack open and like, you know, I could kind of picture like these rock people like coming up out of the ground and speaking like, praise the Lord. <coughs> Here's the thing, gang. I hope there never comes a day when a stone has to stand in my place in praise and worship of the Lord. I hope that day never comes. I hope there never is a day when I'm so quiet that a stone has to cry out because I didn't open my mouth. Amen? We used to sing this song in this church a long time ago, ain't no rock going to stand in my place. Ain't no rock going to stand in my place. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to glorify the Lord. No rock. He says, I'm not going to stop it. Because even if I did tell them to be quiet, the rocks themselves would cry out. Man. Now you have to imagine the scene. They're coming in. There's Jesus on a donkey. You know, he's coming in on this little donkey and everyone's going crazy and they're yelling Hosanna in the highest save now they're like this is the one he's the deliverer and uh, people are throwing down their coats on the ground and they're waving palm branches and everyone's like in hysterics just in such joy and look at Jesus 41 now as he drew near he saw the city and wept over it he wept everyone is going out of their minds bananas and Jesus is weeping. And it's not just like he's got a little tear, like, like the Indian on the side of the road where the garbage comes out. Remember that commercial? No. He's convulsing, the word is. Uncontrollable grief. He is convulsing. I'm not even sure if anybody notices. They're all so wrapped up in the praise and the worship. I'm not sure if they even noticed the fact that he's weeping as he approaches Jerusalem. He says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day... <clears throat> the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus says, if you had known this day, he's looking at Jerusalem, he's saying, if you had known, in fact, he's saying, you should have known. You should have seen. You see, here's the thing. The day that Jesus was to arrive, the day that the Messiah was to ride in to Jerusalem as the one that was the, as it says in, in Zechariah, having salvation in his hand was predicted a long time ago. 
We know in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is reading the scriptures and begins to understand that they are coming to the very end of the 70 years that they were cast into captivity. And as he's praying and weeping about this, Gabriel comes to Daniel and gives him further understanding of the things that are to come. One of the insights that he gives to Daniel is the exact day that the Messiah will arrive in Jerusalem. In fact, there was a man called Sir something something. <laughs> John Anderson. Something Anderson. Shoot. That's what his name is. It was 100 years ago, he was the head of Scotland Yard. He looked at all the prophecy in Daniel and was able to figure out that the Messiah was going to arrive in Jerusalem 483 years after the command was given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That works out to be 173,880 days from the time that the command was given to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, that the Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Guess what? That's this day. 173,880 days to the day Jesus rides in on a donkey that had never been ridden before into the city of Jerusalem. Can I get an amen? amen. He says, had you known that this was the day that the Lord had made? They skipped that part of the, of the psalm. Jesus is weeping over the fact that they're missing it. They're expecting him to be something that he is not going to be, and, 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 and they're going to turn. And he's weeping over it. He says, but incidentally, the day that he rides in to the city of Jerusalem, did you know that that's the actual same day that they bring in all of the lambs that they've been raising in the field to be examined and used as the sacrificial lambs on the day of Passover? Did you know that Jesus rides in the same day that the sacrificial lambs are brought in? The Lamb of God rides in on the day that the lambs that will be sacrificed for the atonement of sin. Same day. Many people believe same gate that he came in through the same gate. They would take these lambs and they would bring them in and they would be examined to see if they were approved and worthy for sacrifice. But we know that that's the exact thing that's going to happen to Jesus. He's going to be examined as the Lamb of God and he will be found by God to be worthy of sacrifice. Man, I've, God is amazing the way he works this out. 173,880 days to the day the final perfect sacrificial lamb rides in and will be examined and sacrificed. Oh, thank you, Lord. Jesus is going on. He says, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is actually speaking prophetically right here of when the Roman army will actually come and surround Jerusalem and cut off every inroad so that they will, for like a hundred days, <coughs> they won't have any food or water coming in. There will be no supplies. There's no way to get out at all. In fact, it goes so bad that people are dying in the streets and eventually um, they just can't bury everybody who's dying in Jerusalem. And they just start throwing bodies over the wall into this big like, ditch that the Roman army had dug around the city to keep anybody from going in or out. And the, the bodies are filling up in this trench around the city. And Titus Vespasian, Vespasian, Titus, the ruler of the Roman army, looks at this. And although he's not a believer in God, he looks to the heaven and he says, this is not my fault. Please don't hold this against me, God. Now, eventually, 
he is able to take the city and he goes in and there's a Roman soldier sets fire to the temple. Now, remember, the temple is made out of white marble and is covered with these gold plates on the front of it. And the, as the temple burns, the gold melts and it drips down through the temple stones. Remember, because there's no mortar in between these stones in the temple, they just fit together. The gold goes in between all the cracks in the stones. And when the fire is out, the Roman army comes and they tear apart the temple trying to get at the gold, it says that they did not leave even one stone unturned. Right there, Jesus predicts that exact thing. Now, verse 45, it's kind of a pause. It says that he goes into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold. But in, um, in John's gospel, it says that he went into the temple, but because it was the end of the day, he leaves and he goes back out to the house in Bethany where he was, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And I'm thinking, you know, Jesus is coming to the temple. He's been weeping over Jerusalem. He comes and he sees the corruption that's going on in the temple courtyard. He goes back to his friend's house. He just must be a wreck knowing what's coming forward. And what, is he, what does he see when he gets there or what does he um, smell? The lingering devotion of Mary from the night before. What a comfort that must have been. To just smell the oils of the devotion that Mary poured out onto his feet. To be comforted by his friends in this time that is great, greatly sorrowful to Jesus of what's coming. He knows what's coming. Now, I don't know this for sure, but it is Jesus' character to go and spend time alone with his father. So I imagine this night he goes and he spends time alone with his father in prayer. And he gets up the next morning and it says that he goes into the temple... And it says now that he drives out those who bought and sold, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, you know what was going on there is at this time of year, people had to come in with their sacrifice to be able to offer it for, as the Passover sacrifice, but it had to be examined. So if you had come from a far off land where you were traveling a long way, it might have been, you know, hard for you to bring your goat or ox or sheep or birds, whatever it was you had to offer. Um, and so you would decide, instead of trying to drag this sacrifice across the land, I'm just going to buy one when I get there, which was uh, acceptable. But you couldn't use coinage that had anyone else's image on it in the temple. So you had to exchange your money when you got there. You had to actually exchange your coin for temple coin. Now, initially, this was set up to help them. It was initially set up so that they would say, okay, I need to exchange these coins, and they would exchange the coins for them, and then they were able to go and buy an acceptable offering in order to offer it. But, <clears throat> as often happens when it's left to man, it became corrupt. In fact, what they were doing was they were... Um, working together to cheat the people to say, if anyone brings a sacrifice from outside of the temple, we will examine it and we will find a flaw so that they then can't use that. They actually have to go and buy a, a, a sacrificial animal from our stock, but they can't use their coins. They're going to have to exchange their coins. So here's what we'll do. We will charge them an exorbitant rate on the exchange. In fact, it says that they were charging them 20 times the rate, 20 times the cost of an animal and 20 times the rate of exchange. And so you would come with your money and you would walk away with less than what you came in with and then have to spend all of it just to buy a lamb or a, a bull um, that they said was acceptable. And so they were cheating. And in fact, what Josephus, who's this first century uh, historian writes, is that... <clears throat> Annas and his sons, now there were two high priests at the time, which is unusual, but Annas was recognized by the Jewish people as the high priest, but Caiaphas had been put into place by the Romans as the high priest. So there were two, two high priests, essentially. Annas and his sons ran this whole racket. They were the ones that were running the money exchangers, and they were the ones running the, the marketplace of selling these, these uh, animals for sacrifice. 
Now, Caiaphas, though, was getting his cut because he was the official high priest. Josephus writes that he was making, in our time, in our monies, uh, just to help you understand, $3 million a year just from this, and he was just getting a cut. Do you understand that, Caiaphas, that Annas and his family was make, were making millions of dollars off cheating the people in the temple courtyard? And Jesus comes in, and he sees all this corruption going on, and he decides he has to cleanse the temple because it is supposed to be a place of prayer. And I love in this version, in this, uh, the red letters in my Bible, it says that Jesus says, my house, now he's taking ownership of this, my house is to be a house of prayer. You know, they were set up in the court of the Gentiles. It was the only place that someone who wasn't Jewish could come and could worship and, and connect with God. And rather than it be a place of quiet prayer, they had made it this busy, corrupt marketplace. Now, do you know that this is the second time that Jesus has done this? Early on in his ministry, a few years before he had come in, and it says that he did the same thing. In fact, it says that he fashioned a whip out of a cord and he started like driving out the money changers, saying the same thing. My father's house is a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves, he says. And he drives out the money changers and those who bought and sold. Here he is. And, and the thing is, like after he did it the first time, I'm sure it was cleared out for a little while. But eventually... Guy sets up a booth. Nobody says anything. Another person sets up a booth. Pretty soon there's a dozen booths. Pretty soon there's a hundred booths. Now it's a marketplace again. It crept back in. The place that Jesus had cleansed was now once again a corrupt, busy marketplace. He comes in and he cleanses it again. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful because you know what? There was a time when Jesus came into my life. You know that the Bible says that we now are the temple of the living God? We are the temple of the living God. At some point, Jesus came into my life and he cleansed the temple. I'm thankful for that. It's painful, but I'm thankful. But just like we see in this story, it starts to creep back in. The stuff starts to creep back in, doesn't it? And pretty soon you've got some corruption going on in there. You've got some stuff that doesn't belong in there. You know what Jesus does? cleanses it again. Then, you know, once it's cleansed, it's good. You're like, all right, I'm right with God. I'm right with God. But then, you know, it starts to creep back in, creep back in until you're full of corruption again. And guess what Jesus does? He cleanses it again. And he'll do it as many times. Sometimes it's every few years. Sometimes it's every few months. Maybe it's three times a day. I'm so thankful that he is faithful to come in and cleanse my temple every time. I need him to do it. But I'm hoping that as I become more like Christ, it will need to happen less and less and less. That's my prayer. Jesus comes in and he cleanses their temple, driving them out again. He's making a big noise. You understand that at this time in Jesus' life, there's like wanted posters of him all over the place. They, the Pharisees said to everybody, if anybody knows where he is, come and tell us. There, he is a wanted man at this point. And he's not just sneaking in to Jerusalem. He's riding in in a huge procession, riding a donkey, <coughs> going into the temple throwing all the money changers and those who bought and sold out, clearing the whole place and turning it back to a place of prayer. He is not afraid of anyone at this point because he says, this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the time. This is the time that I will be glorified and lifted up. In fact, when he says lifted up, he's talking about the cross. But he says, this is the time. This is what will happen. You cannot stop. The Bible says, if it is of God, you cannot stop it. It says right here, and he was teaching daily in the temple. Not only does he come in in a big way, not only does he go in and cleanse the temple, but now he's teaching every single day in the temple. In fact, you know, it'll be when they come to get him in the garden at nighttime under the cover of darkness, he'll say to them, I was with you every day in the temple, every day, and you did nothing. Now you're going to come in and, and sneak under the cover of darkness to take me? 
This is what he was doing, teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for the people were very attentive to hear him. The people were surrounding Jesus, and they were like, we can't go in and get Jesus now. All these people who are supposed to be supporting us and following us, they'll all be mad at us. We can't go and get him now. We'll have to do it in another way. And so we're going to stop there for today. And we're going to see that Jesus is going to spend these remaining days in the temple teaching. And we're going to see some really cool stuff. Well, we're not, <laughs> because we're going back to Matthew. But you should read on Luke 20, Luke 21, um, especially as we walk through this Easter season. So, so, so much, so much devotion to the Lord. Where's your devotion to the Lord? What do you have of value that he's saying, you need to lay this down. Lay it down at my feet. Lord, thank him for cleansing the temple as often and as many times as he does it. But ask you, Lord, Lord, give me the strength to keep the corruption out of my life. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much this morning for your word and for this time. Lord, I thank you for coming in as the one who brings salvation. You're amazing. Lord, I am so thankful that there was a time that you stood up and said, now is the day, today is the day I will come in and I will be glorified and no one will stop me. Lord, I pray that there never come a day when a rock needs to stand in my place and proclaiming your glory and my devotion to you, Lord. Forgive me for those times when that has already happened. Forgive me, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen.